0: Most of us don't spend a lot of time thinking about the intricacies of international relations. We can't. We're busy dealing with more immediate things like cooking dinner, paying bills, and listening to podcasts about true crime. We might read about global politics in the paper, about the statistics we all boil down to when viewed from far away. But our own private lives feel safe from those calculations like they operate in a different world. You never think you'll leave badminton practice and find yourself trapped in a complex web of espionage and nuclear politics. Until it happens. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from ParkCast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet a 13-year-old girl from Nikita, Japan. One November evening in 1977, she left badminton practice and never came home. Her tragedy is just one piece of a story that spans decades and continents. Her name is Megumi Yokota.
1: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We
0: were blessed. My mom was amazing.
1: But detectives would soon discover inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true.
0: I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke.
1: From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Nikita Prefecture is a good place to raise a family. It's known for its national parks and hot springs. In its coastal towns, there are long, beautiful stretches of sand along the Sea of Japan. The water off the coast looks endless, but it's not actually. Directly across the sea, North Korea is about 620 miles away, and that will come into play in this story. It's a story that exists right at the intersection of high-stakes politics and intimate personal agony. Two things that don't comfortably coexist. And when taken side by side, they can paint a dark picture about how missing persons are valued on a global stage. But there's hope in this story too. A lot of it. In the fall of 1977 though, Nikita doesn't know it needs help. The evenings are totally peaceful. The loudest sounds you'll hear are the waves crashing on the shore. And if you catch the right moment, the sound of junior high school girls laughing as they leave badminton practice. On November 15th, 1977, Megumi Yokota and several friends exit their school gymnasium. It's around 6 p.m., a windy evening, and the sky is already dark. Book bags and rackets swinging from their arms, they keep each other company as they walk. When they get about four or five minutes down the road, they reach the street where they all go their separate ways. Megumi continues along the road that overlooks the beach. She doesn't have far to go, but it's the kind of walk to savor. She looks out towards the water, and then she sees something, something she's not supposed to. Meanwhile, at the Yokota house, Megumi's mother, Sakie is cooking stew. One of Megumi's nine-year-old brothers, Takuya, is practicing violin. Tetsuya, his twin, is watching TV. Their father, Shigeru, a Bank of Japan executive, isn't home yet. It was his 45th birthday just yesterday, but he's held up at a work party for some new employees. Megumi should be home any second, but she's late. Sakie starts to feel something rising in her gut, then in her chest and her throat. She tells herself not to let the anxiety get the better of her. Badminton practice probably ran late, or Megumi is lingering at the gym talking to a friend. Sakie can only suppress the worry for so long though. At about 7 p.m. she turns off the stove and runs out of the house. By now it's dark, but she tells herself she'll meet Megumi on the road. Her daughter has to be somewhere on the path between the school and home. Except, she's not. The night watchman at the school looks at Sakie in confusion when she arrives at the building door, breathless. She asks where the girls are, where Megumi is. When he replies, they left a long time ago, Sakie feels a long, cold chill run down her spine. Sakie runs home again, shivering. She calls the mother of one of Megumi's friends, but Megumi isn't there. So Sakie calls her husband and tells him to get home now. She calls the police, and soon Sakie and her young son step into the night with flashlights, ready to search alongside officials. There's a pine forest nearby. The search party combs through the trees with torches and dogs. They call Megumi's name again and again. There's no response. The search moves to the beach. Sakie peers into the windows of every car parked along the shore. Time drags as night turns to day, and the hunt continues. Throughout every search, Megumi's father keeps the comb she gave him for his birthday in his pocket. I imagine it made him feel close to his daughter. A small physical link, something private and intimate. But a week into the investigation, that privacy disappears. The police go public with the story. They circulate Megumi's photo in the papers. It's the same photo that sits by her father's bedside. He took it about six months earlier when Megumi started junior high school. She's in her school uniform, standing beneath a cherry blossom tree in full bloom. She has a sweet face, round cheeks, and a thick, blunt bob. She might be tall, but she still has the face of a child. The photo hits the papers. A kidnapping unit moves into the Yogata house. Patrol boats comb the sea for Megumi, or some sign that she ended up in the water. Police pour 3,000 staff days into the search, but still nothing comes of it. And this is the part that I can't really wrap my head around. The walk from Megumi's school to her house was seven minutes long. For more than half that time, she was with her friends. She was so close to home. She might have literally caught a whiff of her mother's stew on the wind. If she screamed loud enough, her family might've heard her, even over Takuya's violin. At some point, dogs pick up her scent and trace them to a corner just 100 meters from her house, about a minute's walk. But right there on that corner, so close to safety, Her scent cuts out. Officials don't know what to think or where to go from here. And honestly, looking at the evidence, neither do I. They wonder if Megumi was kidnapped for money, but a ransom note never arrives. Investigators also suggest that Megumi might have been the victim of a sex crime. And as much as I hate to think about the Yokotas receiving the news... I don't blame the police for raising it as a possibility, even though there's no specific evidence pointing to that being the case. Because the police are right. Sex crimes, however horrifying, are almost always on the table with disappearances, especially when the missing person is a young girl like Megumi. What I do blame the police for is the fear they instill in the yokatas. They tell the family that something similar could happen to their young boys, They show martial arts videos to the nine-year-old twins and tell them, don't get beaten, be strong. I'm sure the police had good intentions, but imagine hearing this as a little kid who just lost your big sister. The world has suddenly become a much scarier place, and the police only drove that message home further by saying they'll have to protect themselves with their little kid arms and legs. And there are other dark possibilities the Yokotas have to consider, like the fact that Megumi may have run away. It's standard practice to consider this as an option, especially when looking for a missing teen. But in this case, it doesn't seem plausible. There's no evidence that Megumi wanted to run away. Even if she did, it's unlikely she would have been able to remain totally undetected by investigators for so long. Still, the seeds are planted in Sakiye’s mind she can't help but wonder if Megumi did run, and whether it's her fault, which is only natural in these situations, to want to find something to blame, even if it's yourself, even if you know better. Sakie says, I'm not perfect. I wondered if I failed her, or there was something I didn't know about her. As she grieves, Sakie turns to religion, but her husband doesn't. As he puts it, If there's a god, then he'd give Megumi back to us. Eventually, months turn into years, and years turn into decades, and Megumi never comes home. For the Yokota family, things are never the same again. As Megumi's little brother Takuya puts it, Megumi was very chatty, very active and bright. She was like a sunflower for our family. Without her at the dining table, the atmosphere got very dark. The family does their best to accept their new reality, that Megumi is gone. Everyone knows the longer a case stays cold, the less likely it is for a lead to come up. Still, there's always outliers. And when a story from a North Korean spy finds its way to Japan, Megumi's case becomes one of those outliers. It's September, 1993. The world has changed drastically since the day Megumi Yokota vanished. There's internet now. A Disneyland in Japan, the Berlin Wall has fallen. If she is somehow, somewhere still alive, Megumi is 28. But some things have stayed the same. Across the water from Niigata, North Korea is still behind its own private iron curtain. Few people can get out but many try, including one of the country's spies, An Myong jin who makes it all the way to Seoul, South Korea. There, he offers up information to authorities in exchange for protection, and he tells an incredible story about a Japanese woman he once met in Pyongyang. She was one of the teachers at his espionage school. She taught Japanese language and behavior. Myong jin says... I remember her very clearly. I was young and she was beautiful. She was also mysterious. He wondered how such a young Japanese woman ended up in North Korea, so far from her native land. Until one day in 1988, when one of the spy masters tells him the story. It starts on a cold, windy autumn evening, with two North Korean agents waiting for their getaway boat on a beach in Nikita. It's getting dark. But when the two agents glance backwards, they can see the road above, and there's someone there, a woman, looking at them. Without pausing to think, the agents grab her, carry her into their getaway boat, and lock her in the hold for 40 hours. When they unlock the door in North Korea, her nails are torn and her hands are bloody. She tried to claw her way out with all the tenacity of an adult, but in the daylight, they can see her face and they realize that she's just a child, and she's weeping. The spymasters aren't pleased. They aren't in the business of raising kids, but now that she's here, they do their best to make use of her. So they tell her, if she learns fluent Korean and works very hard, they promise they'll let her return home, someday. So she does. She works hard, becomes a teacher, she does everything they say, and then some. She grows into an enigmatic young woman, adored by her students. As An Myung-jin says, everyone who met her wanted to be around her. Judging by how she carries herself, you'd never know that she was ripped from her family, especially because she can likely never speak about her past. Presumably because she couldn't, it wasn't safe. Jin tells this story to South Korean officials in 1993, but it takes four more years to work its way across the sea to the Japanese government. In 1997, two decades after Megumi's disappearance, the Yokotas finally receive a phone call with the news. Now, when it comes to unexpected, incredibly delayed leads, this has got to be one of the wildest stories I've ever heard and also an incredibly convincing one. In his story, Miyong-jin never referred to the woman as Megumi, but she was apparently given a new name when she arrived in North Korea. And every single other detail lines up perfectly with Megumi's disappearance. The timeline, the locations, the age. And to top it all, the physical description Miyong-jin gives sounds just like an older Megumi. Jin may be under enormous pressure to share as much information as he can, but he has no discernible motive to lie, especially about a Japanese girl who went missing 16 years earlier. There's no reason Jin would have even heard about Megumi's disappearance. If I'm amazed by the lead, imagine what it might have been like for the Yokotas, It's everything they've wanted for so long but thought was basically impossible. Their daughter is still alive, and they know where she is. The Yokotas learn something else too. Their daughter isn't alone. North Korea has a long history of abducting people from Japanese shores and forcing them into their spy program, Some analysts believe that as many as 100 Japanese nationals were kidnapped by North Korea around the same time as Megumi. Worse, they find out that Japan has been aware of these disappearances for years, but the government hasn't made any effort to recover the victims. They haven't even officially acknowledged that North Korea is behind the abductions, despite a considerable amount of evidence. See, Japan's afraid that if they do acknowledge the issue, they'll antagonize North Korea and risk starting a nuclear war. To the Yokotas, bringing Megumi home is everything, but they can't do it without help from their government. The problem is, to the government, Megumi isn't a daughter or a sister. She's basically a number on a page. One, one victim of around 100. And if the welfare of an entire nation is at stake, what's one citizen? What's 100? How do you save them without jeopardizing the rest of the 126 million people in Japan? I don't have the answers. Now, the Yokota family takes the risks seriously. They understand what's at stake, but put yourself in their position Surely there must be a way to bring Megumi back safely. And isn't the government's job to do all they can to figure out what that option is? So the Yokitas make a decision. They decide to go public with their story, get as much press as they possibly can. They're going to force the government to acknowledge what happened to find a solution. It's terrifying especially because the Yokotas know that North Korea leaders might hear their pleas too. And if they do, there's no guarantee they won't kill Megumi to cover up their crimes. But if no one advocates for these abductees, nothing will change. So they take the risk. The story lands, hard. It's been waiting to break. The whispers have been building for years, and now there are faces to give it resonance. Megumi's sweet 13-year-old face and her parents' heartbroken, determined ones. The Yokotas do primetime television interviews. They make the front page of newspapers. Slowly but surely, everyone in Japan learns Megumi's name. But not just Megumi's. The Yokotas advocate for all the abductees, for every family that has pleaded with their government for years without any response. They share the same pain, the same sense of loss, of neglect, but they're stronger together. It's easy to feel powerless when you're alone in these fights, like you're screaming into a void and no one hears you and no one cares. But there's power in numbers, especially when it comes to a situation like this. Alone, the Yokotas could be seen as overly emotional family members who are just desperate to get their daughter back but together, they're able to show the larger issues at play here. Eventually, the Yokotas' efforts force a case to be brought up in Parliament, and with the full force of public outrage behind the Yokotas, the government caves. In May of 1997, Japanese leaders officially admit that the Yokotas and all the families fighting alongside them are telling the truth. Their loved ones were abducted, and they were taken across the Sea of Japan by North Korean spies. It's a euphoric moment. But the euphoria quickly comes crashing down when the families receive a heart-wrenching follow-up. Japan doesn't have any official diplomatic relations with North Korea, so it's not possible to negotiate the release of their loved ones, at least not anytime soon. Japan needs to build those diplomatic relations first. Which the government says they'll try to do. But it'll take time. After all, it's politics. Of course, it's not politics to the Yokotas or the other families. To the best of their knowledge, their loved ones are alive, only 620 miles across the sea of Japan. To the families, this is urgent. So they organize protests outside of government buildings. They beg officials to move faster. They tell stories of their losses again and again, even though it never gets easier. The only progress they can see doesn't feel much like progress at all. Japan starts sending food to North Korea. It may sound strange, but North Korea has been struggling with a devastating famine. Japan hopes the aid will pave the way for better relations between the countries. It's something. To the families of the missing though, this aid feels counterintuitive. While Japan is helping the abductors, they get nothing in return. But politics is a long game. And after a few years, the results come. In 2002, North Korea becomes even more desperate for food and Japan's Prime Minister Junichiro Koizumi sees an opportunity. On the 17th of September, he becomes the first Japanese Prime Minister to visit North Korea. He says he'll meet with Kim Jong-il, but before he does, he wants to know the details of every Japanese citizen abducted by North Korea's spies. 30 minutes before the talk begins, he receives the list. It includes 13 names,
1: Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer.
0: In 2002, Prime Minister Koizumi receives a list of Japanese abductees from the North Korean government. But it's not the relief he was looking for. There are only 13 names on the list— of the 100 or so experts estimate were taken, and eight of them have causes of death, including Megumi's. Koizumi is appalled, especially as he reads the causes of death written beside the names. They include drowning, choking on fumes from a broken coal heater, a heart attack in a 27-year-old woman, and two car accidents car accidents in a country where it's rare for anyone to own a car. And on the list is Megumi Yokota, who they said died of suicide. The date is March 13th, 1993, nine years earlier. The same year, Ahn jin fled North Korea, saying he'd heard she was still alive teaching at the espionage school. It doesn't add up, and not just Megumi's date of death. None of it makes sense. Almost all the tragedies apparently occurred while the abducted were in their 20s. So many premature deaths from such strange accidents just seems odd. On top of that, North Korea claims they can't hand over the victims' remains because floods have washed away most of their graves. Prime Minister Koizumi is in disbelief. He tells Kim Jong-il, I was utterly distressed by the information that was provided. I cannot bear to imagine how the remaining family members will take the news. Still, Koizumi says the abduction issue is important, but so are the issues of nuclear weapons and missiles. So, the talks proceed anyway. He gets an apology out of Kim, who blames the abductions on overzealous North Korean patriots. The dictator says that as soon as he found out what happened, he ordered his spies to cease and desist. And he specifically says that Megumi's kidnappers were tried for their actions in 1998 and found guilty. One was executed. The other died in prison while serving a 15-year sentence. Of course, none of this information is verifiable, but in the end, for Koizumi, it's enough to shake hands he signs a deal called the Pyongyang Declaration. North Korea will halt its nuclear development program and only five living abductees will be returned to Japan. In exchange, Japan will provide North Korea with economic assistance, humanitarian aid, and long-term low-interest loans. In October 2002, the Yokotas watched the plane carrying the abductees land at Tokyo's Haneda Airport. They watch as five survivors fall, sobbing into the arms of their families. After everything, Sakie Yokota still can't help but hope that Megumi will step onto the tarmac. But she doesn't. Sakie and Shigeru are left standing on the sidelines, reckoning with everything that's happened. Sakie can't stop thinking about the location of Megumi's alleged suicide a pine forest outside a psychiatric hospital where she was being treated for depression. She tells the Washington Post, "'In Nigata, we had pine forests. I'm sure she missed them. I'm sure she was very lonely. For a minute, I thought maybe she longed so much for us that in an instant, she took her own life. I cried. But in the next minute, I said no, that could not have happened. I do not want it to have happened.' I don't want her to have gone through that. It's a lot of very complex emotions compressed into just a few breaths. But I understand Sakie, or I think I do. The human mind wants to look for connections, like the pines in both North Korea and Japan. And after everything Sakie has been through, after being told that her kidnapped daughter might be alive after so many years, only to have the rug pulled out from underneath her, Of course, her mind races to make sense of it all, through memories, despair, hope, disbelief, doubt. And she's totally justified in doubting the information North Korea provided. Not just because it's so painful, there's reason to believe North Korea isn't telling the truth. Listen to this. Eventually, Pyongyang provides records from the psychiatric hospital where Megumi reportedly stayed. They tell the Yokotas that the paperwork is a death registry, but on the back of the form, under the word death, a phrase is crossed out. It reads, registry of patient entering and leaving the hospital. North Korea also gives a new date for Megumi's alleged death, without providing any further explanation. They now say Megumi died in April 1994, not March 1993, And the thing is, this new date still doesn't make sense. One of the abductees who made it home says that Megumi moved in next door to her in June 1994, two months after Megumi's second-listed death. And she says Megumi lived in that apartment for several months. Now, there are several reasons why North Korea might lie about Megumi's death. Maybe after teaching in the espionage school for so many years, they felt she knew too much to let her go. Maybe they thought she was too valuable an asset to send back home, so they faked her death, among others. Whatever the case, the discrepancies in the story provide space for doubt and hope that Megumi is still alive. And the Yokotas hold on to that hope. They refuse to believe that Megumi is dead until they receive her remains. And eventually, North Korea does send Megumi's remains. But when the Japanese government tests them, they can't confirm they actually belong to Megumi. So the limbo continues on, to this day. The Washington-based Committee for Human Rights in North Korea has found evidence that North Korea kidnapped citizens not just from Japan, but from 14 different countries. Thousands have been taken from South Korea, Most appalling of all, the abductions are ongoing. Today, most of the targets are South Koreans helping North Korean refugees in China and North Korean citizens who have fled the country. The fact is, time operates differently for individuals than it does for a nation. Governments can afford to take their time. They can survive decades without making any progress at all. But the victims can't, and neither can their families. In 2020, Shigeru died. The parents of most of the other Japanese abductees have also passed away. Some of their siblings have taken up the mantle of their fight and at 85, Sakie is still advocating. Even so, the abductees themselves are aging. As Megumi's brother Takuya points out, Spending a year or 20 years in Japan or in England or the US has a different meaning to spending the same amount of time in North Korea. In North Korea, it's very hard not only to stay alive until tomorrow, but to keep alive today. This all could paint a somber portrait of what it means to be an individual up against institutions. But I wanna challenge that takeaway. When I look at the Yokota's efforts to find Megumi, I see something powerful. Powerful in a way that dictatorship can never be. With the odds stacked against them, they banded together with other families of the missing who individually were just ones in a census poll. But together, they were loud enough to make change and bring five victims home. For me, Megumi's story is about humanity in the most inhumane of situations. And if there's anything strong enough to resist absolute power, it's gotta be that. So today, I'll join Megumi's brothers and the families of all other abductees in keeping faith alive. I'm choosing humanity. And whether she's alive or not, my heart goes out to Megumi. next episode. A story that in some ways feels like the inverse of everything I just covered. When most of the Martin family disappears in 1958, only one is left behind. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing person case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney, and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Nora Battelle, with writing assistance by Connor Sampson and Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.